0: How about that worship set tonight, huh? So good. I ran into Chris House in the hallway, and and uh, who's our worship leader? I was like, "What are you doing here?" right because he travels he ministers beyond city life and then sometimes he's at the campus down and in, in, uh in suffolk and usually when he's not here he's somewhere else and he said this is the first he's been on staff with us for about five years he said this is the first time in five years that i've been able to just be in church how great is that i know come on he's out there somewhere i don't know where he is he's out there somewhere so that's one of the things we love about Chris is not just his gift that comes from his life, but the gift that he imparts to others. Are you with me? The gift that he imparts to others, and so uh, during the the. Uh, um the rehearsal time when they were, band was just getting dialed in. I was walking around in here praying and just and worshiping and as, as, as they were uh, going through the different songs. And, and we, we circle up and go through the service and, and pray for the service at about quarter of. It. And so Tara came over and said, I've been meaning to ask you for a long time, what's this thing that you do with your hand when you're worshiping, right? She said, What instrument is that, right? What instrument is that? And I said, it's not an instrument. And she looked at me, and she said, well, what is it? I said, this is, this is me dancing. <laughs> I said, when you can't dance, you dance with your hands, right? I look like Bruno Mars on the inside, <laughs> on the inside. But on the outside, this is all I got. This is all I got. So that's the instrument I'm playing over there. So, hey, a couple of things before we dig into the into the message tonight. I, and that song, too, just the... Uh, The Reckless Love. It talks about tearing down a lie, and that's the the reason why we're going to be studying in this text tonight. We're going to tear down a lie together. Um, So, all right, but before we get into that, because I'm going to get excited and start preaching. The um, uh, next next Saturday, like last week, we used Pelican Snow as an illustration. If you missed that or weren't here, then you can get that in the podcast. But after the service, uh, JB and Nate, a family in our church, if you know Charlie, he's got some special challenges, and so they've been doing fundraising over the last couple of years for a a home renovation that we're going to be talking to you more about uh, in the coming months, but they've got a fundraiser at Pelican Snow next Saturday, they're opening early for them, and so it's at noon. It's at noon, and so you will find me there at noon, and I hope that you're going to go too. Not just because you get a preseason Pelican Snow, uh, but that you can help give for the because the proceeds are going to go towards uh, this renovation that they're doing to help meet uh, those needs that Charlie has. So I hope that you join me there. It's going to be good. So she said, when she said, I didn't know whether or not to say anything, and and she said, but when you start. Talking about in the service, she's like, I knew. I just had to tell you, and so now I'm telling you. So I hope that you're gonna you're gonna join me there. So hey, just two more two more things. And, and during the week, as I'm praying for the service, I'm in here a lot, just walking around and praying and. So many times I feel like God, just God speaks to me about the message uh, or he speaks to me about something for the church that's not part of the message, but I still share. And then sometimes I feel like he speaks to me about a person. And, and then sometimes I know, too, that's just for me to share with that person. But then sometimes I have a sense that I'm supposed to share it to that person in the service, and whenever we do that, we always get their, their permission, and so, I'm, I'm, and I think that one of the reasons why God does it this way is because it, he wants you to know that when you read in the Bible about the gifts of the Spirit, they're for today, they're for today, and God speaks, and sometimes he's going to speak to you for someone, and, and so, so part of this is to minister to the person, but part of it is to minister to you, to give you a vision, to have a listening ear, because God wants to use you in the same way, and And so Christina Mary is here. She's wearing a blue shirt tonight, part of our SLT. There she is. Come on. She's going to stand up for us. I love that courage, but she's battling cancer. And so as I was praying for the church, I was not praying for her. I was just praying for the service, and, and God just dropped in my heart and said, I want you to tell Christina that cancer is not her story, it's her battle. It's her battle. And that being a lover of Jesus is your story. Being a wife is your story. And a mom and a daughter and a sister-in-law. That's your story. A woman of God, that's your story. And, and cancer is your battle to fight And So we just want to pray for her. Can we just do that? So if you want to gather around her, you can do that. Come on. Father, we just lift Christina up to you. We thank you for her story. We thank you that you're, you're writing a story, new chapters in her life as she is a devoted follower of Christ and in her journey, as even as we're talking about in this series that all of us are on a journey, that you've brought her to a battle and we're just praying by faith that this is gonna be a victorious battle for her, that cancer is just gonna be eradicated out of her body in Jesus' name, that she's gonna win, she's gonna be victorious, that there's gonna be a sense on the other, side of this fight, and that part of her story on the other side of the battle is that I've overcome. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said together, amen, amen. Come on, can you clap for that? And then the other... Person, I didn't get her permission, but she's kind of bold like me, so I know she won't care, but uh, for uh, Alyssa Alvarez, she's not here. She's traveling with her husband, Adam, and, uh, and so I just kept praying after that moment happened, and then, um, and then I felt like God spoke something to my heart. She's going to listen to the podcast, but she's really sharing about devoted, right, how God's calling her to be an evangelist, and, uh, and there's a new boldness that she's, I know, it's good, right? Just clap. You can do it. So, Alyssa, if you're watching on the podcast, this is what I want to say to you. This right side of the church, this belongs to you. And you're going to fill all those seats by the end of this year. And it's, come on, and it's going to go right up into that balcony. And Alyssa's going to become known as Alyssa Right Side Alvarez. That's going to be her street name here at City Life, Right Side. All right, all right. So good, so good. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Matthew 7, 13, and 14. While you're doing that, I'm just going to dance. Seven <laughs> thirteen 7, 13, and 14. We're digging into these verses. We got into them last week. It started a new series entitled 2.5. Last week was It's Never Too Late. This week is entitled The Two Crowds. It says you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad. And its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. We talked last week about how God loves this, this imagery of being on a journey. I want to read these verses to you again. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. He uses this imagery of a path or, or, or a way to, to talk to us about in this life we're on a journey with him. Psalm 1611 says, you will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. Proverbs 426 says, mark out a straight path for your feet and stay on the safe, safe path. Last weekend we said that because I'm eternal, It is never too late to turn back. And embracing his authority, submitting to his right to rule my life gives me hope to make better choices this time. And if you want to understand what that statement means and how it correlates to this verse and the Sermon on the Mount, then you can get that on the podcast. Uh, the, the messages are online every week. We put our notes. We cover a lot of textual ground here at City Life. And so if you're a note taker, I know that can frustrate you, but the outlines are on the service every week as a PDF. And also the video portion of the sermon is on there as well if you need to find something. And so tonight we're going focus in on, on this idea of two crowds that, that we find, that we uncovered in this text last week of all the twos, right? There's two crowds, there's two gates, there's two ways. We're going to focus in on the on the two crowds. And the, and the purpose of tonight is exposing the lie that Satan perpetuates, right? Just like in the song, Reckless Love, it talks about tearing down a lie. There's a lot of lies that Satan perpetuates in this world that need to be torn down by the truth of God's word. So we're going to tear down a lie tonight that Satan perpetuates in this world a a lie of many crowds Jesus says they're just two crowds and one of the lies that the devil wants people in this world to buy into is that they're not just two crowds that there are many crowds that you can be a part of it's what I like to call the lie of spiritual neutrality in response to who Jesus is father we know that many people here tonight are trapped in this lie some of them are trapped in this lie, and it's the, it's the deception that's kept them from making a vow of devotion to Christ. But we know that others are here tonight, Father, they're not trapped in this lie in the sense that it's kept them from making a vow of devotion to Christ. But this lie of spiritual neutrality, this lie of many crowds, it's trapped them in a place of apathy and indifference when it comes to evangelism. So we pray, Father, for liberty and freedom tonight. We pray that as we tear down this lie with the truth of your word, that there are going to be people that take a stand for you for the first time and that there are going to be people who have taken a stand that find a new sense of excitement and love and passion for reaching the lost, for getting people out of the wrong crowd and into the crowd of Christ. Come on, in Jesus' name, everybody said together. Matthew seven thirteen and 14, let me read it again. It says, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. And then, by way of contrast, he says, the highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few, only a few ever find it. Two gates, two roads, two crowds, two destinations. That's what we talked about last week. We talked last week about how here in verse 13 is the beginning of the epic close of the Sermon on the Mount. It does not start, as some of us have grown up believing, uh, with the the, the parable and the story of the two foundations, that the actual close starts in verse 13. And and the close is is, is much bigger than just the individual texts that you find there. There's a theme in here of only twos to gates, to roads, to crowds, to destinations. Then he shifts to the tree. And he talks about there's only two kinds of trees and only two kinds of fruits. And then finally he gets to the, the, the parable and the story of the foundations. There's two, only two houses. There's only two kinds of foundations. A partnering text to hear in Matthew 7 is Jesus returns to this theme in Matthew 12. Matthew 12, 22, 22 to 30. We have a story here where people who are in the wrong crowd, who think they're in the right crowd, are trying to discredit Christ. Verse 22 says that a demon-possessed man who was blind and couldn't speak was brought to Jesus. He healed the man so that he could both speak and see. The crowd was amazed and asked, could it be that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard about the miracle, they said, no wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. Now Jesus knew their thoughts and replied, any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A town or family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is casting out Satan, he is divided and fighting against himself. His own kingdom will not survive. Verse 27 says, And if I am empowered by Satan, then what about your own exorcists? He's pointing out the hypocrisy of their own accusation. If their conclusion is that you can have power over Satan, you must be working on his behalf. He's saying, well, how about you when you're praying for people to be set free? Verse 28 says, but if I'm casting out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you for who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods, only someone even stronger. So Jesus is not only responding to their accusation by saying, no, that's not the power that I operate with. I'm operating with the power of God. He's making a declaration here that the power of God is always greater than the power of the enemy. Here he comes. Now he could have just stopped there. He would have made his case. But in verse 30, he gives us this incredible statement. He says, anyone who isn't with me opposes me. And anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. He takes this opportunity for this this effort to discredit him, to reach back into the principle that he introduces in the Sermon on the Mount of there are only two crowds. And he's saying to those religious leaders, you're not in the crowd that you think you are. You're either with me or you are against me. There are only two choices. Somebody say A or B. A or B. Winston Churchill, Darkest Hour. Anybody seen it? Come on, it's out on Redbox. It is good. Gary Oldman won the Oscar for Best Actor. Much deserved. Whoever did his makeup, I hope they got an Oscar. Because they transformed him. If you're you're a movie fan like I am, you hear Gary Oldman's voice and you can't quite seem to reconcile with the picture that he is on the screen. Winston Churchill became the prime minister of Great Britain in 1940. A turning point in World War II, one of the great quotes, as you're going to see, is we're going to play the trailer in just a minute for the movie. It says, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets, and we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Let's watch this trailer together.
1: We must now select my successor. And it's only one man the opposition will accept. He stands for one thing and one thing only: himself. Why have I been forced to send for Churchill? This record is a catastrophe. Let me see your true qualities, your lack of vanity. My iron will. Your sense of humor. Ho ho ho. Your Majesty. It is my duty to invite you to take up the position of Prime Minister of this United Kingdom. I speak to you for the first time as Prime Minister. The Germans have encircled 60 British and French divisions. We are looking at the collapse of Western Europe within the next few days.
0: How long have they got if we don't rescue them?
1: Maybe two days. We would need a miracle to get our men out. You have the full weight of the world on your shoulders. We're facing certain defeat on land, the annihilation of our army, and imminent invasion. We must negotiate peace talks. When will the lesson be learned? You cannot reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth! Nonsense. The only slippery slope... Would you stop interrupting me while I am interrupting you? before us many many long months of struggle and suffering even though many old and famous states have fallen into the grip of the Nazi rule we shall defend our island whatever the cost may be we shall fight on the beaches we shall fight on the landing grounds we shall fight In the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. For without victory, there can be no survival. It's
0: on Redbox. Just saying. Just saying. It makes you want to watch a movie in here, doesn't it? We've never watched a movie in here. right, this sound system. All right, so this is is when Black Panther comes out on DVD. What do you say, right? 3.11 Wakanda right here. 3.11 Wakanda. It's gonna be good. That'll get some people in the balcony. There we go. Whatever it takes, just like Winston Churchill said. Halifax, the foreign secretary, Chamberlain, the former prime minister, they had a problem. And their problem was that they believed that there was more than one option to deal with Hitler. The problem is that they believed that there were were a a manifold of courses that they could take to deal with this problem. This is part of what Winston Churchill, that famous quote, you cannot reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. One of the great gifts that Winston Churchill gave to a nation is that they only had two choices. And that was either to fight and lose and fight and win. That, that was the only two options that were in front of them. They could not consider any other course of action. Complete victory or total defeat, and it was up up to Winston Churchill to help an entire nation understand the lack of options that were available to them. For some of you here, your future, listen, the landscape of your destiny, it hangs in the balance. Just like Europe in 1940s, it hangs in the balance because you want to believe that there are many options when it comes to Jesus and how people can respond to him, but there are only two. There are just two. We've got a slide that we're gonna put up here. Anybody ever take logic in school? Right? How many people you how many of you enjoyed that? Come on, all right. Most of the hands came back up. How many of you are breaking out into a cold sweat just at the thought of math with letters right now, right? I know. Yeah. <laughs> like when did math turn to the alphabet? It's supposed to be numerically exclusive, but it's not. There are letters, and these letters are important because they help us to understand arguments and statements that are valid and not valid. They help us to understand statements that are credible and not credible. They help us to understand statements that are fallible and those that are infallible. And so I'm going to illustrate this for you tonight. This, the, your section, your A. What section are you? A. All right. This section here is? C. Well done. And this section over here is? Is B. Now, if I were to say to you, if you're not in group A, then you're in group B, would that be a credible statement? It would not be a credible statement. Why is that not a credible statement? Because there's C. So if I were to say, if not B, then C, you would say, Fred, that's not a credible statement. That's not a reliable statement because it's possible that you could be In group A. Now, what if it were a year from now and Alyssa Hauser's been doing all the work of evangelists that she's going to do, and now we have a balcony. (laughs) Now there is D. So the balcony's full, right, by faith, and maybe I'm here tonight and I'm saying, if you're not D, then you're C, you would say that's not credible because you could be in either A. A or B. We can keep... Putting these letters in different orders and coming to the same conclusion because you understand that in order for the statement to be credible... In order for the statement to be reliable, in order for the statement to be valid, there has to be certainty that there are only two groups. If there are more than two groups, then whoever is claiming the if-then statement is not a reliable person. They're not a credible person. They're not an infallible person. What I would suggest to you tonight is that Jesus is only ever credible. And everything that he says is only ever valid. And who he is and what he teaches is only ever infallible. In fact, I would go too far to say to you tonight that he is the most credible voice in this universe. His voice is the most infallible voice in this universe. It's the most valid voice in this universe, right? All right. Take that string. You're going to pass it right back down the middle. Right on down, come on. If you're in the middle, you gotta choose a side. If you're in the middle, you gotta choose a side. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. I'm gonna part somebody's hair there. <laughs> that's great, that's so great. All right, there you go, see, you chose a side. Is it back? Who's got, all right, it's all the way in the back. All right, I got one more slide. This side is what? A. This side over here? B. Now if I were to say to you, if you're not A, then you're sorry. <laughs> Just making sure you're paying attention. Because I'm not Jesus. Alright. If Jesus were, he would say, Alright, if you're not B, you're and if you're not a. then you're is that a credible statement? Is it valid? Is it reliable? It is because we've established something in this room, and that is that there are only two groups. If there are more than two groups, it's not valid. But if there are only two, then it is a valid statement to say, if you're not in one, then you're in the other. This is what Jesus says to us. Matthew 12, 30, he says, if you're not, for, if you're not for me, you're against me. One translation renders it that if you're not for me, then you scatter. If you're not working with Jesus, then you're working against him. Listen to this. Anyone who isn't with me opposes me, and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. Jesus is saying there are only two crowds. There is no such thing as spiritual neutrality. There is no such thing as many crowds and many options and many groups to be a part of. In Matthew 7, 13 and 14, let's read it again. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. That's it. That's it. Just the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide. For many who choose the way, verse 14, but the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. It sets up the closing, the great climax to this famous sermon and what he's saying to you and what he's saying to me is that there are only two. Two gates, two roads, two ways, two crowds, two trees, two kinds of fruit, two foundations, two homes, and at some point in your life, you have to decide which group you're going to be a part of. And if you have not chosen... To be a part of Christ by making a vow of devotion to him. This is where the lie comes in from the enemy, which we're tearing down tonight. And the way we tear it down is we say to you, if you've not chosen the crowd of Christ through a vow of devotion to Christ, you have already chosen. By not choosing him, you have chosen to be against him. By not choosing to be for him, you've chosen to work against him. There is no such thing as spiritual neutrality. There is no such thing as many crowds. You have to decide which crowd you're going to be a part of. And there's only one way to make that decision. And that's to take a stand for Christ by bending your knee. We're talking about these two crowds. We're talking about the gospel this year every weekend through this entire year because we want to be a place where people can come and there's the clarity of the gospel. We want to be a church where people can come who have not made this choice, who have not taken the stand, people who are bound up in the lie of spiritual neutrality like I was in my young adult years, people who are bound up into the lie and the deception that there are many crowds. We want to be a place that can lovingly but firmly say to people, there is only one crowd and everyone makes a choice. Even if you've not chosen Christ, you've made a choice in the affirmative for the wrong crowd. I remember when I was 23 and I was weighing my own decision about whether or not I was going to make a vow of devotion to Christ, this revelation of being only two crowds was paramount for me because I realized in that moment that I had chosen to work against the Savior of the world. And I knew that that was not the crowd that I wanted to be a part of. But that's not the only reason we're talking about it tonight. It's one of them because at the end of the service, we're going to create an opportunity for some of you to take a stand through bended knee to choose Christ. But we're not just preaching to that crowd tonight. We're preaching to the crowd that has chosen Christ. Because some of you, spiritual neutrality and this lie that the enemy perpetuates in this world, it has trapped you. And the way that it has trapped you, it has caused you to not be the active force of proclaiming the gospel in the world that you're supposed to be. Matthew 25, 31 to 46. This is a chunk of text, but we're going to work through it together This is such a powerful part of scripture because it's one of the few places that Jesus gives us a window into the end of time. It's one of the few places in scripture where Jesus says, let's get into my time machine and let's travel forward and so that you can see what the end will be like. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd, separates the sheep from the goats because there are only two crowds. He will place the sheep at his right hand and he will place the goats at his left and then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who were blessed by my father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creations of the world. I'm just going to put my finger here, right? If you're reading along, we're just pausing in verse 34. We're going to pick back up in 35. We're in Matthew chapter 25. These verses right here are as if Jesus is reaching back into the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and it is as though Jesus is expanding those two verses and filling it in with great detail it is as if that 13 and 14 are an overview a cliff's notes version of the novel of the end of time that he comes and gives us in matthew 25 verse 35 says for i was hungry and you fed me i was thirsty and you gave me a drink i was a stranger and you invited me into your home i was naked and you gave me clothing i was sick and you cared for me i was in prison and you visited me Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show him your hospitality? They're not saying, when did we do these acts? They're saying, when did we do it to you? When when did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. That's why we show up at Pelican Snow next Saturday at 12 noon, right there. Then the king will turn to those on the left because there are just two crowds. Away with you, you cursed ones into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons for I was hungry and you did not feed me I was thirsty and you did not give me drink I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home I was naked and you didn't give me clothing I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me then they will reply Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you verse 45 and he will answer I tell you the truth when you were to help the least of these my brothers and sisters you were freezing to help me listen to verse 46 this is serious business right this is a glimpse this is not a parable this is not a parable this is a window into the future and all of us are going to be there and you've got to decide which side are you going to be on they will go away into eternal punishment But the righteous will go into eternal life. This is Matthew 7 13 and 14, exploded out the whole story, the complete picture. These acts are not what made them righteous. They were made righteous because they chose Christ. This is the gospel. This text is not given to us to to tell us that, that you work your way into heaven. That's a false gospel. The true gospel is that Jesus died for you and for me because there's nothing we could ever do to earn God's love that Vanessa was talking about during the worship wrap-up. We'll never be good enough, so Jesus took the penalty for our sin. These acts are not what made them righteous. It is the fruit that comes from the righteous, which is why in Matthew 7, when you pick up in verse 13, this idea of Two ways and two gates and and two destinations and two crowds. It transitions into two trees and there's only good fruit and bad fruit. Because that's what comes from the person who's made a vow of devotion to Christ and chose the right side. That when we make a vow of devotion to Christ, when we're born into God's family through grace By faith in Christ alone, the Spirit of God comes and lives inside of us. And when the Spirit of God is now present inside of us, guess what the Spirit of God begins to say to us? Let's go do some good things for him. Let's go change this world. Let's go find the naked and clothe them and the hungry and feed them and the thirsty and give them something to drink because when we do it for the least of these, it's just like we're doing it for him. These acts don't make us righteous, but they flow from the righteous because it's good fruit from a good tree. The people that he's talking about on the other side who were the goats, okay, this is, your. I'll do your left, the goats, I'll stay here. They wanna get you confused. Is it A? Some of you are going, is it A or B? Is it B or A? It's interesting, isn't it? Because they asked the same question that the righteous asked. But they're asking the question because they never did it. They never even did the acts. See, the others were confused, not because they didn't do them, but because they didn't remember it being Jesus. But this crowd here, they're asking, they're asking because. They just never did anything. It doesn't mean that good can't come from people who have not made a vow of devotion to Christ because we know that's not true. People who have never made a vow of devotion to Christ do good things all the time. But what this text is teaching us here as Jesus is giving us this this glimpse into the future is that, that, that there are some people who never do any good because there was nothing inside of them to prompt them to do good. There was no eternal presence of the Spirit of God inside of them to cause them to desire anything beyond themselves. And he's saying to that group here, you never chose. You never chose. And here in the text, as he pulls back into present day, and as we pull back into this moment it's supposed to leave us with this incredibly sobering thought. Have I ever made the choice myself? Is there ever a moment in my life when I look back into the story of my past, where I've made a vow of devotion to Christ and chosen him? Because if you've not chosen him, you have chosen and you've chosen to be against him. And it's a powerful accusation that Jesus gives to us because he's saying that if you've not chosen to be with Christ, he says you're actually actively working against Christ. And you might say, well, Fred, I'm not actually actively working against Christ. I'm just not doing anything. And Jesus' response to that is, that is the very definition of actively working against him by not doing the good that you're supposed to do because there are people. On the other side, that you're supposed to go and reach. There are people on the other side that you're supposed to gather in. And until you make a vow of devotion to Christ, you don't even know what you're supposed to call them to. You got to change sides so you can get a vision for who Christ is in the gospel so you can go back into the other crowd and bring people with you. But then there's this other group you've already chosen you've made a decision to become a devoted follower of Christ and having the promise of heaven is just good enough for you. And Jesus says, it can't be for you. That's what it's all about. You've got to be willing to get into the other side and reach for people. I think there's a reason why he chose this list. I think Jesus always chose his words carefully. I think he picked them for many reasons, I think he gave us this list of hungry and thirsty and naked and not having a home and in prison. I think he gave us those for two reasons. One is I think he wanted to talk to us about just the practical things that we can do in this world that make a difference. The, the book of James picks up with this. I think there's a self-evidencing quality to these things that Jesus is saying that the, those who have been made righteous, they will do. But I think he gave us this list also because there is a prophetic picture that each one of these individually give to us. And I think that we can safely say that because we understand the Bible in light of itself. And when we look at each one of these things individually, we begin to realize that Jesus uses these same metaphors and images in other parts of Scripture for different reasons. And I think he gives us this list because he's saying to us, there's practical work that you need to do. It's like the DR trip that we're getting ready to take where we go down to this village where we're gonna, that we've made this 10-year commitment to that we're halfway through. There's practical things that we do when we get there. Do we talk about the gospel? Sure we do, but we're also putting in water filtration systems and digging latrines, right? Because practical ministry is spiritual ministry. That's part of what these verses are saying to us. But it's saying to us there's more. I think he talks about this idea of being hungry because he's saying to those of us who have been made righteousness because of Christ and we've made a vow of devotion and we're on the sheep side, we're on the right side, we're part of the crowd of Christ that's gonna be invited into eternity and into heaven. I think he talks about this idea of being hungry because he's saying to you and he's saying to me, am I a resource of scripture for people around me? People aren't just hungry in their bellies for food, they're hungry in their souls for the word of God. And he's asking those of us that are on the right side, are you a resource for Scripture, for the people who are hungry beyond things that are temporal? People are walking around us every day and they are starving. If you saw a starving person, I know most of you in this church, you, would, you wouldn't care who they were. You would put them in your car. You would give them something to eat. But people are desperate for God's Word. And the question I think that Jesus is asking us is, are we a resource for scripture, for the people around us. I'm not talking about being the obnoxious, right? Like the guy on Facebook has those hilarious things, right? Where he does the, is it John Christ? Is that his name? He has the the Bible verse for every situation, right? It's hilarious. Don't be that person. (laughs) Don't be that. It's funny on Facebook. It's not funny in real life. It's not being the obnoxious Bible thumper. That's just you trying to boast about your knowledge. It's not caring for people. That's not that caring for people. Being able to be a resource for Scripture for people around you starts with spending time in your Bible every week. You've heard me say it before. I'm not going to tell you to read the Bible every day because that can be an impossible task. What I'm saying to you is read it most days. Read it most days. Most of the week, read. Most of the week. And if you do that year after year, you know what's going to begin to happen to you? You're going to begin to learn God's word. It's going to become a part of who you are and there's going to be circumstances and situations that you're going to find yourself in and somebody's going to be talking to you about a challenge that they're facing, a trouble that they're having and the Holy Spirit now has an inventory to work with and he's going to whisper something in your ear and you're going to be able to share a verse to them that's going to minister. It's going to be food on their plate. Are you feeding the hungry? Are you giving the thirsty something to drink? All throughout Scripture, you find that water is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Oil is, but water is too. How about the woman at the well? Once you drink of this water, he says, you will never thirst again. Do people around me experience the Holy Spirit through me? These are hard questions, aren't they? I go to a chiropractor at least once a month. And you know how there's times where you're sitting there if you've ever been to a chiropractor before and he's just, he's probing around or she's probing around looking for his spot. You don't even know that it hurts until they touch it. You're like, oh yeah, that spot needs some help. I hope that's what these six questions are doing to you tonight. For some of you, you've just been numb for these things and I hope that we're just putting a finger on it. Not to shame you, but to inspire you under the least of these Do people around us experience the Holy Spirit through us? Now, that's a whole sermon unto itself, but the one that I want to focus on is the character of Christ, because first and foremost, that is the fruit of the Spirit. If you don't have the fruit of the Spirit, then people don't want any of the gifts of the Spirit that you're trying to minister to them through. The character of Christ, the 24 virtues that we preach and teach that we spent all of last year on our model of discipleship. Letspraxis.com, if you're new, we'll give you a gift. There's a little booklet in the back that has an appendix in the back, all 24. Those virtues, that's what people need to experience from us. He talks about people who need a home. You can't get very far in the New Testament and not realize that the home is the metaphor for the church. Am I actively looking for people who don't have a church home? We say at this church all the time that we want to be a place that makes a difference in the lives of spiritual orphans. People who've made a vow of devotion to Christ, they're on the sheep side. Eternity is promised to them. They're going to heaven, but they're living this life in spiritual solitude, and God wants them to have a spiritual family. Whether they settle here or not, that's not what's important to us. We want to bring them in here to reawaken their appetite for community. This is part of what Jesus is saying is, are you looking for people who are spiritual orphans and inviting them into this house? Because that's part of the purpose of gathering every week for church. One, it's to remind you the crowd that you're a part of. But it's also to create a community for other people who are in the crowd who need a home. And it's not about them staying here. It's about them finding a church somewhere. Sometimes it's just being here that reignites their trust for church again. And then we get them plugged into a church somewhere in the city. How about clothing the naked? What's that metaphor? Do I have a reputation for protecting the dignity of others? How about the woman that was caught in adultery? How powerful is that story? We can get so caught up in the wrong things that people are doing. We completely lose sight of the greater ministry that that person needs from us in that moment. And that's to protect their dignity. Jesus called her to a higher place, but he didn't start there. He didn't start there. He started with protecting her dignity. He started by standing up for her. They dragged her out of that bedroom. She was probably naked as she came into this world. And they threw her down in front of that crowd. I think a big reason that Jesus was writing on the ground is he was just trying to draw attention away from that woman. He was just doing what he could to get people to look at him and stop staring at her. Do I, do you have a reputation for protecting the dignity of other people? What a list, what a list. These last two, I think they go hand in hand. So he talks about the sick and he talks about those in prison. It's both practical and prophetic. When is the last time I talked to someone about the gospel? When's the last time I had a conversation with someone about Jesus and that he died for me? Ask yourself that question. When when is the last time that you talked to someone about the gospel? I think he contrasts the sick and the imprisoned because he's making an accusation against the righteous. And I think this is the accusation that he makes. We see the sick as someone who's a victim. And so we're much more inclined to minister to them because we see them as being undeserving of their situation. And so we rush to the sick we rush to the person whose lifestyle is, is such because we can, can say that, 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 that this isn't their own doing. Oh, but these people over here. These people over here. I'm not saying that there aren't innocent people in prison. That, that's another conversation for another time. That, I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. I think Jesus is talking about the guilty. I think Jesus is talking about the people who were supposed to be in prison because they've done bad things. And I think he's contrasting the sick with the imprisoned because the righteous, we rush to the victim, but we look at those over there with a sense of indignation and say they have brought that upon themselves. And so there's nothing inside of us that, that drives us to bring the gospel to the person who's being punished for the wrong that they've done. And Jesus is saying the righteous It makes no matter whether they are the sick, whether they are the imprisoned, whether they are the victim or whether they are the rightly punished, all of them, Jesus died for them and they need to hear the gospel. They need to know that there is no sin that is too great. They need to know that when Jesus was on the cross, he saw them. They need to know that there's a narrow gate that they can pass through, no matter what they've done, no matter where they've been. Even if they're going to be in prison for the rest of their life because of the egregiousness of the acts that they have committed, there is an eternity that's waiting for them on the other side if they choose the crowd of Christ. Everyone needs a Savior. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Two crowds, people. Just two crowds. Philippians 2, 4 through 13 says, don't look out only for your own interests. Ouch. He gets you there, doesn't he? But take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death on a cross. Verse 9, therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and In heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day every knee is going to bow. No matter which crowd you're a part of. And for all of us, it's going to be our last act before something eternal happens. And those that have chosen Christ from that place of bended knee we enter in. To paradise, But those who rejected Christ and never made a vow of devotion to him from bended knee, they enter into perdition for all of time. Now, verse 12 in my Bible, like in your Bible, oftentimes has a header that indicates that the Apostle Paul is changing and moving forward onto a new idea. The Bible is divinely inspired. All the editing notes are not necessarily so. Verse 12 should not be separated from verse 11, and neither should verse 13, and I want to read them to you, and I want to tell you why. It says, dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you, and now that I am away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. Those verses should not be separated from the verses above it because if you do, we get to the end of those first few verses and I don't know about you, but it leaves us feeling helpless because we say, I can never do that. I can't do what you're saying I should do. I, I can't continually put others in front of myself. I can't be like Christ because I'm not him. Paul knows that people are going to think this way. It's why he puts those words in there to begin with. Because he's building to this great promise. He's saying I know you can't in your humanity but because the spirit of God and his divinity now lives in you, you can do more than you ever hoped was possible. Because of the spirit of God that's living inside of you, you can begin to live a life that puts others in front of yourself. You're not always going to get it right but you can get a vision for getting it right more than you're getting it wrong. Part of what he's saying here part part of what he's saying to the world is that I know I understand that there are times where there's not a desire inside of you to choose the right thing and Paul's saying that's why you need the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you to give you new desires to live a different kind of life To make a vow of devotion to Christ and in doing so the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you making you a bad tree into a good tree so good fruit can come from your life. Good fruit can come from your life. The kind of fruit that Jesus talks about in Matthew 25. We don't want to be a people that where Paul writes to the church of Corinth that we barely made it into heaven escaping the flames. We want to be a people that find our way into heaven because we made a vow of devotion to Christ. We chose the right crowd and became the people that were seeking out people to bring them back over to the other side. That we became a people that did all the practical things of Matthew 25 but did them in a spiritual sense too. So we can hear him say to us, well done my good and faithful servant. So this is how I want to close tonight before we sing the song, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. I'm going to invite you to stand. And I know this is going to take some courage. I got it. I know it does. All of us who have made a vow of devotion to Christ, we've, we've had to take that stand ourselves. As we sing the song, this is what I'm going to ask you to do. I I, I know it, it, it's not easy being conspicuous, but I'm telling you, there are some of you here tonight, you've never taken a stand for Christ in your life ever. You've been thinking about it, you've been weighing it, you've been talking about it when I'm saying that tonight can be your night will you get out of one crowd and get into the other? And I'm just saying as we sing I'm going to invite you to come kneel in this altar. I'm just going to invite you to come kneel at this altar. Don't be the person that says I'm going to wait until the last verse because that's the kind of thinking that got you where you are already. You want to say As soon as he steps away, I'm going to be the first one down there. I'm going to be the first one. I'm going to be the first one. But you're not the only person that I'm calling out tonight. For some of you here, you've made a vow of devotion to Christ. But you've bought into the belief and the lie of many crowds of spiritual neutrality. And there is nothing inside of you that's longing to reach the lost with the gospel of Christ. And for you, I'm going to invite you to come and kneel at this altar. And that's your way of saying, God, I want you to awaken inside of me a passion and a desire to reach people for the gospel of Christ like I've never felt before. As we sing, you come.